0: Does it work? Does it work? It works. Okay, good. Um, wow, I'm giving a CME at IDAA. Wow. I wonder if this will take care of my craving for being the center of attention. I don't know. Well, you can see that I'm from New Orleans, and uh, you probably know that people from New Orleans look at alcohol a little bit differently than people in Iowa do. whoever's going to buy this tape isn't going to like that so people come to New Orleans from all over we have a reputation in New Orleans Uh, New Orleans is actually not a city in America it's a small Caribbean island that accidentally floated north so we get lots of weather that people don't get and and, um, we handle weather a little differently than other people when it, when it hails, we say, where's the bourbon? Of course, New Orleans isn't just known for bourbon street, alcohol, strippers, gambling, anything else that's been mentioned up here about the dopamine system. But uh, people come to New Orleans to eat, too. And people in New Orleans have a little bit different view of food, because we know that herbs are mood-enhancing, especially when taken with pizza. So, it's sort of ground zero for just about anything you'd want to use to stimulate your midbrain dopamine system. Now, it hasn't always been that way. New Orleans was founded in about 1718, and it wasn't until 30 years later, in 1748, that someone bought the first liquor license. There were 800 colonists in the city, and they auctioned off six liquor licenses for six uh, pubs to take care of 800 people, not counting uh, the two groups of mercenaries, each of whom had their own pub. The sale of these six licenses paid for the entire healthcare, for the entire colony, for the whole year. Right now in New Orleans, uh, annually there are probably in excess of 5,000 liquor licenses uh, given in the parish. They cost less than $500 each, and it would probably take Charity Hospital's budget about half a day to spend that money. I'd like to read you something from the big book. One of the many doctors who has had the opportunity of reading this book in manuscript form told us that the use of sweets was often helpful, of course, depending upon a doctor's advice. He thought all alcoholics should constantly have chocolate available for the quick energy value at times of fatigue. He added that occasionally in the night a vague craving arose, which would be satisfied by candy. Many of us have noticed a tendency to eat sweets and have found this practice beneficial. Well, of course, everyone in here has read that. Everyone in here knows that. This is a fact. It's in the big book. It's worked. It's worked for millions of people. It must be true. What do you think they do in an O.A. meeting when they're doing a the big book step study and they get to this part? <laughs> That's what they do, right. So, um, let's take this as a fact, but, but the thing is, is, this was written in 1935. And all those genetics you heard about today, and all those neurochemical things you heard about today, and the monkey brains, and the rat brains, and the PET scans, none of that did Bill know. Now, Bill did know there was something physical going on, and they all knew. They knew something was physically wrong with them, but they didn't know what it was. It looks like sugar, you know, was a drug, and, and it looked like a safe drug. Well, maybe it was a safe drug. But when facts change, John Maynard Keynes said he changes his mind when the facts change. So, what are we going to do if the facts change? Well, Ken told us about uh, contempt before investigation. So maybe we can investigate a little bit. Now, I had a whole bunch of slides I'm not going to use because Ken used some of them, and uh, Randy used some of them, and uh, Dr. Teitelbaum used some of them. And um, actually, they not only gutted this presentation, but every presentation I've ever given in my life. (laughs) So I have nothing left to say to you. Good night. Um, so but what is addiction? Well, Dr. Teitelbaum told us it was three things. Preoccupation with the drug, continued use in spite of adverse consequences, and failed attempts to cut down or stop use. One of those sounds like a diet to me. <laughs> One of those sounds like continuing to overeat in spite of the fact your doctor told you your diabetes is out of control, your hypertension is out of control, and if you don't lose weight, you're not going to be walking for long. And another one of these things sounds a lot like, what am I going to have for dinner? And then as soon as I'm finished with dinner, what am I going to have for breakfast? And being preoccupied with that thought all the time, unless of course I could distract myself with another drug. So, dsm four is the Bible now. I know more, more people in here probably give more credence to the big book than dsm four, and that's, that's good. But, you know, for psychiatrists, and I happen to be one, uh, DSM-IV is, is it diagnostically. And it says that alcohol dependence is a single disease different from cocaine dependence, or benzodiazepine dependence, or heroin dependence or pathological gambling, which isn't even a dependence in the book, or binge eating disorder, which is also not anywhere near the addiction part of DSM. Someone mentioned, I think it was Dr. Teitelbaum, mentioned uh, yesterday about this, and he said that, you know, that the word alcoholism is nowhere in the big book, and it's not. I am not the big book, DSM. We, I, two big books in my head. Sorry. That word alcoholism isn't anywhere in DSM-IV, but it was in DSM-II. And alcoholism was very clearly right there in DSM-II, and the psychiatrists knew about it. Psychiatrists knew a lot about alcoholism. I mean, you know, Bill had places to go before AA. There were treatment centers opened all over the country in the early early 1900s. Not that they knew a lot about what to do about it, but they knew a lot about the natural history of alcoholism. So diagnostically, there's nothing, no reason why alcoholism shouldn't be in the DSM, except that um, one year at the APA, when they were writing dsm 3 they got together and said, well, the insurance companies told us that they don't pay for Catholicism or communism, and they're not going to pay for alcoholism either. So we have to call this something scientific. Why don't we call this alcohol dependence and we'll come up with these criteria and you have to have three of them to be alcohol dependent. And that was great and they all said, yeah, yeah, raise your hand. Must have been a real smoke-filled back room at the APA. It was a long time ago and probably some smart aleck in the back said, oh yeah, but what about the guy that's only got two criteria? Well, the consensus was that these guys were alcoholics, too. We're smart psychiatrists. We know what an alcoholic looks like. They're not going to fool us for long. And besides, it's only going to be 5 or 10% of the population. So let's just call it alcohol abuse. And then we'll figure it out later. And so their intention was that everyone was alcoholic, but the guys with abuse just couldn't figure it out yet. And we'd figure it out. And it would only be 5 or 10%. Well now, if you look at diagnosis today, of 100 people diagnosed with an alcohol use disorder, 30 are diagnosed with alcohol dependence and 70 with alcohol abuse. And why? Because we're still fighting the same fight that the people fought when they were using DSM-2. Because if I tell the insurance company that I'm treating you for major depression and your self-administration of alcohol because you've been so low on your serotonin, I get to get paid. But your insurance might not cover your care for alcohol dependence and the existential dysphoria that goes along with untreated addiction. Restless, irritable, and discontent isn't in the CPT code. So there's nothing really I can do about that. Before I came, I asked some people who are both in OA and AA, at least, if they're not in other 12-step programs, to tell you what they would like you to know about their experience with alcoholism and compulsive overeating. And I know you can read as well as I do, Ken, but people are going to be listening to this on tape, so I'll read it out loud. This is Leah's story. Leah got sober 10 years ago, and shortly after that found that she had an eating disorder. She was advised that alcoholics should avoid sugar, and she did. Eating sugar-free foods, she felt for the first time that she didn't have to struggle with how much she ate, And so she ate more because it was sugar-free. She gained weight, feeling then that there was no use because she was gaining weight. She just decided to eat whatever she wanted as long as she didn't take a drink. After eight years of obsession and living one meal to the next, Leah read a book called Dieting a Dry Drunk. She realized that compulsive overeating may be killing her more slowly than alcohol did, but it was still killing her. She said, it was the obsession of always thinking about my next meal. I wasn't with anybody. I was in my head with the food. Leah is currently working in OA as well as an AA program and has enjoyed her sanity for over two years. Could you guys listen to Leah's story and write in benzodiazepines or write in cocaine or write in alcohol? It really isn't any different. And so what you've heard is that all those drugs of abuse work through the medial forebrain bundle, that midbrain structure, the reward pathway. And so they're all going to have something in common. And what they have in common is this compulsive, repetitive use in spite of problems, adverse consequences. And also that if we go without them, we're going to be craving them or something that substitutes for them. And that the drug or the behavior causes some impairment down the road. That's a picture not as elegant as the pictures you've already seen of the medial forebrain bundle and the nucleus accumbens there in green. And that big black olive is the amygdala you heard a lot about. We might get to that. Um, We might not. Now these little guys are spitting out dopamine. The little blue balls are dopamine. And they're packaging them in bags and throwing them out. And those monsters are the enzymes that are eating up the dopamine. And there's also that vacuum cleaner that you heard about. Ken told you about that little guy with his hand down over there bringing the dopamine back up. And of course those other little guys are the dopamine receptors down at the bottom. What this slide does not tell you is how long the dopamine molecule stays in the synapse between the cells. Does anybody have a guess how long an individual dopamine molecule stays in there? One-fiftieth of a second. So you've got to have dopamine receptors all over the place because it's not going to get many chances to bang on one. And If your vacuum cleaner is running in overdrive, it's going to even be less than that. One-fiftieth of a second is for normal brains, normal brains. Well, I don't see many of those. This I stole from the internet. This came from the NIDA website, National Institutes of Drug Abuse. Up top is an alcoholic. Down here is the normal in that study. These are three different studies. Look at the red. The red is the most intense dopamine binding. The alcoholics have less red, have less dopamine receptors than the normals do. If you look at the cocaine addicts, in the up and down the cocaine's a the normal, these cocaine addicts have less dopamine receptors than the normals in that study. And these obese people have less dopamine receptors than these normals in that study. You look at these three things, and also if you look at opiate-dependent people, it's the same thing, because of course this is the same disease. So if you look at addicts, you're going to see that addicts have less dopamine receptors than normal people it always makes me wonder, how did they pick normals? Because in that alcohol study, normals just didn't drink, but they didn't weigh them, and they didn't see how many times they were going to the casino that week. And the obese people, they just picked normal-sized people as controls, but they didn't ask them if they were compulsively exercising. So, we're not really sure about how to put these things exactly all together, but somebody out there might be noticing that if it was true, I mean, you can't really do this, but you might be noticing that the obese people have a little bit more red than the alcoholics who have a little bit more red than the cocaine addicts. Don't make anything of that. These are three different studies. But if you are thinking that, and if it's making sense to you, think of it this way. Cocaine is the fast lane. like and it wasn't Ken's slide, Who's Joe's slide, I think. Cocaine was the fast lane. Alcohol is the middle lane. Compulsive overeating is the slow lane, but the highway is going to the same place. Now, when that signal comes, when you take the drug and your medial forebrain bundle spits out dopamine, dopamine comes out in a rush, and the faster it gets up, the more the pleasure. What's the difference between taking cocaine in taking Welbutrin. Cocaine works in seconds. Welbutrin works over five hours. Who's going to sit around for five hours waiting to get high? You don't get high if it takes five hours to get there. You just feel a little better. Now, the faster it goes up and this narrower the spike and the bigger the spike, the bigger the crash. That's not Startling information, right? I mean, if we'd asked alcoholics who wrote the big book in 1935, and we said, well, after you get high and you come down, do you feel about the same way you did before you took the drink, or do you feel worse? They would have told us, but we didn't really believe them until we got rat brain data, and that's where this is from rat brain data. My good friend in the audience, Tony, really didn't want me to show any monkey brains, so I'm talking about rats. Well, You might have noticed, oh wait, I forgot to say You might have noticed that when you come back up, it comes back up a little slow, and I don't have it quite getting back to baseline. And it doesn't really quite get back to baseline. Now, you're not blowing out tens of millions of dopamine-producing cells, but this recovery kind of comes asymptotically close to where you were before you took the first drug, but it doesn't get back there. And that's because this dopamine surge whether it's a dopamine surge or it's a secondary glutamate surge that comes after it is like lightning hitting your house now your house has fuses to protect your television set and your brain has fuses too. When lightning hits your brain something's gotta blow to protect the more delicate parts and that something is the dopamine receptors and the dopamine producing cells in the ventral tegmental area that you saw a picture of. Some of them die those cells die and we have no evidence that they come back. So when you look at these PET scans of people who have been, who you know just started using cocaine and then been using cocaine for ten years, and you notice that their ventral their, their sort of the media forebrain bundle has less dopamine binding down here. And that if you look at an MRI, you can kind of see that this whole area is sort of shrunken. It it is maybe because Axons have pulled back, and it's maybe because cell bodies have died. But like you've already seen people show you slides that even after 200 days, brains do not come back to normal. So something permanent is happening. And it's happening really slowly, just a little bit at a time. But after months, let's say that dark line is where you're craving really strongly in the crash. So this is one of those guys who's not an addict right away. That, that Ken told you about, the people who could use and then sort of become an addict. Okay, so this guy starts out, he's not an addict. And he uses, and he gets high, and then he crashes. And when he crashes, he's below that threshold, and he really has to get another drink or another drug or another brownie sundae. Something. And when he gets back up, see, the high is never back to where it used to be. He never gets the first high again. And over months, years... This baseline starts to fall so that he's living his life now where using, getting loaded isn't getting high anymore. He's feeling vaguely back to normal. Now, another thing from 1935. Alcoholics, addicts were always telling the doctors, I don't like this. I hate alcohol more than you do. I I wish this stuff would go away. I wish you could cut out of my brain any part that made me drink. I just have to have it. I don't like it. And, of course, we didn't believe them. Psychiatrists did not believe addicts until the rats told us that the addicts weren't lying. Now, this is another phenomenon. It's called expanding craving. And I learned this from a patient of mine. My patient was in Orleans Parish Prison uh, for a kind of a mildly violent robbery offense. And he'd been in for two years. He was a cocaine addict. And um, that whole two years he didn't use, didn't use anything, didn't get any treatment, but he didn't use anything. And he felt really good, and he felt really strong. And he knew that he was not going to use cocaine ever again. Now, if you ever come to New Orleans, go down to Orleans Parish Prison at the corner of Tulane and Broad, and take a look at the surroundings. You can see that when you walk out of the prison, you have a view of an overpass, an empty brewery, and a McDonald's. Now the most inviting thing there is the McDonald's, and that's where my patient went. Besides, if you spent two years eating the sheriff's food, a double quarter pounder and a big supersized fries and a big chocolate shake sounds pretty good. So he went to McDonald's, and his dopamine system got a little bitty blip. And, of course, it came down a little bit, not quite enough down to craving, though, but a, a little bit of a crash. And so he's standing out at the bus stop waiting for the bus to take him home. And, you know, 20 minutes goes by and his meal's digested and the sugar and the fat high has kind of fallen off. And he's noticing that these people are crowding him and it's hot in New Orleans in the summer. And and he's noticing his mouth is dry because, of, you know, he just had a lot of salt and the only thing he had to drink was a milkshake and he's kind of getting irritable and he notices all these people around him are wrong and so he decides they're just wrong and he's right and he gets righteously indignant with where this man is standing and what that woman is wearing and where that guy's tattoo is and what it says and he is just righteously indignant and he decides these people do not deserve his company and off he goes walking down the street high on anger which was actually his first drug, as he described it. So he's walking down the street, and about a half a mile later, anger's starting to wear off, and he sees a bar. And he thinks, well, I know I'm not going to drink, but a Diet Coke would be really good right now. actually, a Coke. An ice-cold Coke would be really good right now. So he goes in, and he has one that feels really good. So he has another one. And he has two Cokes and leaves the bar. Proud of himself, he didn't have anything to drink. And maybe a little bit buzzed, feeling good because the sugar released all that dopamine into his medial forebrain bundle, and he's feeling kind of good again. Then, of course, it falls off. And this time when it fell off, because the high was higher, the low was lower. And now, next bar he sees, he decides that since he was so successful at the last bar, he can go into this bar without any problem. And he does. And that first beer really wasn't a problem. And neither was the second or the third. And he really stopped there after three beers. And he walked out feeling like he had enough dopamine, not being able to put it in those words, but feeling like he had enough dopamine, he walked out and he kept walking home. And of course, that wasn't going to last long. And then three blocks from home, he saw a guy he used to buy from. And the next morning, he woke up in parish prison. He taught me a lot. He taught me that a drug is a drug and he also taught me why all those trials of naltrexone don't work. When they tell you about naltrexone, they tell you it really just stops the second drink. You've got to drink the first drink, have the dopamine spike, get the enkephalinergic feedback loop and that naltrexone's going to block that loop and stop you from craving the second drink. And then, but there's this weird thing. It actually causes decreased craving, and it actually stops some people from drinking their first drink. And this patient showed me why. It's because our first drink is not our first drug. Now, AA knew this too. They said, you think before you drink. Nobody's relapse is spontaneous. There's even a great, I forget the guy's name, I think it's Ken or Jim, The guy in the big book who used to own the car dealership and now he's working at the car dealership and he's really kind of irritable about having to work for a guy at a dealership he used to own. And he goes out in the country and he decides he's going to sell a car to some guy at a a cafe. So he goes into this cafe he used to go to and he decides he's going to have a sandwich and a glass of milk and he does. And then he decides that felt so good he's going to have another sandwich and another glass of milk. And that felt so good, he thought, you know, i got enough food in my stomach. I bet I could take a shot of whiskey in the next milk, and it would be okay. And you know what happened after that. I probably read that story six or seven times before I realized that Jim overate before he took his first drink. And whatever causes that dopamine spike causes that dopamine spike. And whatever causes that dopamine spike has the dopamine crash after And so we could start off on little things, like anger, like resentment, like feeling high because everybody's looking at me right now. Not really, I'm scared, but I'll get over it. So here's Steve's story. Steve is 50 years old, and he started going to AA and OA 20 years ago. I'm like the little kid who throws sand into the air so it can fall in his face. His mother comes along and says, Stop that. You'll go blind. And the boy says back, Can't I just do it till I need glasses? I want to work my program just enough not to go blind. There are ways I can act out, he meant overeat, and still not gain weight. I begin to believe my own rationalizations. And then I walk into meetings and not talk about my experience. I did that for ten years and relapsed while going to meetings. For the last three years, my life has been much deeper than it ever has been before. I work five different 12-step programs and I need them all. Steve's first drug he relapsed on was his overeating. And that secret worked out so well, he started drinking. And that secret he got to keep so well, he went back to pills. And actually, that one he kept so well that he went to detox in Colorado, one of those overnight detoxes, Um, said it almost killed him. And he came back so sick, his wife took him to the emergency room, and the emergency room doctor figured out that the medicine he was taking wasn't medicine for the flu. And the whole story came out, and Steve got the chance to go back to treatment. So the drug inside is the drug we're addicted to. Dopamine. And the medial forebrain bundle will get its fix. It doesn't care where it gets it from. Now, somebody mentioned, I think it was Ken mentioned, if you are an evolutionist, how do you make sense of this? How come all the addicts didn't just die off? Well, how many people in here steal regularly? None. Okay. How many people in here would steal if you hadn't had anything to eat in five days? Right. Okay. How do you know that? Your cortex says, it's bad, it's wrong, don't steal. You shouldn't steal. Civilization will fall down. Everything will go to hell. But your medial forebrain bundle says, uh-uh, ain't enough dopamine. I don't care who's in your way, I don't care what you have to do, go get the food. That's normal. Where would the species be if we didn't have an inborn, hardwired survival mechanism to get the dopamine system to where it has enough? Now, it's just that there weren't any cocaine trees hanging around for us to adapt to. So we adapted to things like a piece of sweet fruit, little bitty things, you know, a good laugh with friends sex with your wife, a good hunt, a good buffalo kill. We adapted to those kinds of little highs. We weren't ready for cocaine or methamphetamine or alcohol. You know, by the way, this is an aside. Your body uh, has enough alcohol dehydrogenase to metabolize in a single pass all the alcohol it really never needs to metabolize. And that's the alcohol, the anaerobic bacteria in your gut make if you happen to have to run away from a rhinoceros and you get anaerobic. That's what we were designed for. We have that huge liver that takes an hour to take care of a drink because we need to metabolize the alcohol in a single pass. Otherwise, what's the first uh, symptom of alcohol when you take it? Disinhibition, right? I'm not afraid anymore. I turn around at the saber-toothed tiger and I say, Here kitty, kitty, kitty. And that wouldn't have lasted very long. So we were perfectly designed to handle our dopamine system the way it was. And of course some of us are a little different because the environment changes and we had to be ready. that Maybe, you know, in the winter when the food went away, some of us had to be able to stand famine a little bit better than others. Some of us went crazy and died in the winter. Some of us ran out in the snow looking for food because we had to get that fix. Others were able to sit still. But you can get compulsive about whatever your dopamine, whatever your medial forebrain bundle says to get compulsive about. And this is what Shirley wanted to tell you. These two drugs are the same. When I'm not abstinent, there's the shame, the guilt, the struggle. I have a desire to live a healed life. It's all the same. When I'm not comfortable, I reach for what's familiar, even if it's killing me, and food is always there. I need to hear the hope I can make it for 24 hours with serenity. I need the concrete steps and the idea of abstinence in order to be as sane around food as I am now around alcohol. Now, Shirley is actually still struggling with her abstinence from time to time. But, uh, but her abstinence from alcohol has not wavered for 19 years. She says it's much harder for her to remain abstinent from food than it was to remain abstinent from alcohol. So we've heard this normal res- abnormal response to alcohol. But what I'd like to suggest to you is that maybe some of us have an abnormal response to alcohol, but others of us have something else in common. That there is an abnormal response in in the dopamine reward system. And that alcohol for us just happens to boost that system. And some people may be wired for alcohol and others wired for cocaine. And there's some good evidence to suggest that that's the case. But dopamine is a common thing. So what can give us dopamine? Well, cocaine, opiates, cannabis, nicotine, y'all knew those. You probably knew caffeine too. The American Psychiatric Society, no, association, sorry. The American Psychiatric Association has in the DSM that those drugs, the first four, can cause syndromes of dependence. That is, they're addictive. But caffeine isn't. Isn't that good news, Joe? Caffeine's not addictive. Right. Didn't have to have it on that thing. Well, I think many people in here know that caffeine's addictive. Caffeine is something that someone can use in their disease of addiction. But psychiatry really doesn't see that yet. And of course, like the big book said, we get dopamine from chocolate. We also get dopamine from food, sex, gambling, anger, a job well done, sleeping a lot, or, oddly enough, sleep deprivation. Remember residency? You know? That One of the reasons we had that bad training is because maybe we really didn't want them to change it. Maybe it kind of felt good to not sleep for 36 hours and feel really good, like I saved the world. Maybe we got high a little bit for a little while the next day until we crashed. But then people had other ways of handling the crash. The absence of stress... It also gives us more, not more dopamine necessarily, but it increases our dopamine receptors. What Ken told you, that AA changes the brain. I'm going to show you how it changes the brain in a little bit. So, where does the dopamine go? Everybody's been talking about this dopamine, and on most people's slides, you've seen a little bitty arrow going from the medial forebrain bundle up to the prefrontal cortex. That's a serotonergic output from the nucleus accumbens going to the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex handles judgment and this odd thing called salience. What is salience? Salience is another life-saving thing we all have. If you're walking along and just it's a field of flowers and everything is wonderful and clouds going by and you're nice and calm and you hear a tiger roar in the distance, if you don't have the capacity to recognize things for their salience, you just keep walking Just, you know, birds Twitter, lions roar, no big deal. But it is that dopamine to the nucleus accumbens, serotonin to the medial forebrain bundle, that lets us know that's not a normal thing. We need that. We need to know. That stands out. That's not part of the flowers. When that place, the the ventral medial prefrontal cortex is what all those letters mean, when that's damaged, let's say car accident you know your front of your head hits the dashboard poor judgment inability to switch the mental construct of consequences due to a loss of salience now since most of my slides have been taken i have nothing to do but tell you stories so i want to tell you a story about a card game this is called the Iowa gambling task it's a great game four decks of cards the first two are identical with each other The second two are different from the first two, but identical with each other. In the first deck of cards, you flip the cards and each card has a reward, a monetary reward. And each card also has a monetary penalty. Now on the first deck, the rewards are really big, real rewarding. But the penalties are big too, so that if you only flipped all the cards in the first deck, at the end of the deck, you're way down. The second deck is the same as the first. The third deck, the rewards are real small. Reasonable rewards. And the losses are reasonable losses. So if you only flipped cards in the third deck, you come out a little bit ahead. Not a lot, a little bit. And the fourth deck is the same as the third deck. So they took a group of methamphetamine addicts and a group of normals. I don't really know where the you know All we know about normals is they weren't methamphetamine addicts. but from this test you'll see they probably were pretty normal the methamphetamine addicts, guess which cards they picked from they liked the first two decks, they liked the first two decks, they liked those big hits they didn't mind the big losses because they really couldn't get their head around that this was a consequence, that this was a loss they were so busy counting the money they just made they couldn't think about the loss now the normals They'd throw a couple of the first two decks over and get kind of scared and move on to the third one and then they'd finish up. Here's what the real kicker is. They did this test while everyone's head was in a PET scanner. The normal people, when they were doing this test and making their judgments, what part of the brain lit up was the prefrontal cortex. Lit up. More oxygen flowing to it. It's working over time. They're making judgments. The methamphetamine addicts, their limbic system lit up. Their dopamine reward system lit up. And their prefrontal cortex got hypofunctional. <laughs> You've all met people like that. You've all experienced that. But of course we don't believe it until we have PET scan data. I already told you this, but let me tell you another story. This is how I think AA works. I'm not, I'm not gonna say that. I don't but this is how I think AA changes the dopamine system, to be specific about that. So monkeys. Sorry, Tony, they're gonna be cruel to monkeys. Four monkeys, you raise them in a cage by themselves. This is stressful. Monkeys don't like to be by themselves. Neither do we, right? They grow up, by themselves, they have this many dopamine receptors. Okay, you take all four monkeys, you put them in a cage, together now. One of them becomes the alpha male. His dopamine receptors go up, and everybody else stays the same. Why? His stress was relieved. Now, how come these guys' stress wasn't relieved? They're with other monkeys now. Well, they're at the bottom of the pole someone's looking down on them. They're looking up. When we're looking up, we don't feel good about ourselves and those dopamine receptors get sucked back in. When we're horizontal with everybody, we let our dopamine receptors back out. I think getting horizontal with the world actually is what allows people with low, lost their dopamine, because they maybe burned it out to get into AA or NA, work a spiritual program, and actually be able to live with the dopamine they have. Because they can get more bang for the buck. Now, how long does this last? Well, you guys in here know about a day. You could have guessed that, right? But of course, you had to have science to confirm it. Another thing that everybody knew in 1935. Could you imagine if the guys who wrote the big book Worked at the NIH and were deciding on what studies could have been done. This all would have been taken care of in the 60s. You know. But anyway, so you can't get more dopamine back. You can't grow these ventral tegmental area cells, but you can increase your dopamine receptors without a virus. Here's John's story. I hear all the time in meetings that it's easier for me to be in recovery from alcoholism because I don't have to have a drink. But I have to eat. I don't think that's true. For me, it's easier to be a dry drunk with alcohol than a dieting overeater. But if I'm working my program in every aspect of my life, I'm sober for both, and I have no more urge to overeat than I do to have a drink. Can you have too much dopamine? Do I have time for this? Yeah. Yeah, you can't have too much dopamine. This is how a little bit of the different genetics that you didn't hear might be. Like, yes, alcoholism is a disease. Yes, addiction is a single disease. Yes, everything's in common. But maybe the roads to that disease aren't in common. That we all have different roads. Well, here is a tale of two rats. You already heard about one of these rats. But I'll tell you how they got to be like this. They started out, they bought a box of rats from Rats or Us. These are normal Norwegian lab rats. You try to make them drink lab alcohol and they won't drink lab alcohol because rats are not as stupid as we are. They know it hurts. It, it actually, you know, alcohol, the reason it burns is it is it reacts with the multimodal pain fibers in the back of your throat. Two other things make it go, too. Hot peppers and hot pokers sticking back there, okay? So, rats say this doesn't feel good. They don't like it and they won't drink it. Now, but you have a hundred rats, and so they're on a bell-shaped curve, and you, have, you can teach rats to drink alcohol, actually, and they do it in the lab the same way that that society did it to us. You just make a wine cooler. So, you put a lot of sugar, which it, uh, rats like, you put the sugar in with the alcohol, and they all need extra sugar to drink it, but some of them need less sugar than others. So over here are the guys that only needed a little sugar to drink the alcohol. And over here are the guys who wouldn't drink the alcohol with 95% sugar in it, okay? So you take the males and the females on this end and you mate them together and you get another 100 rats. You take the males and the females over here, you mate them together and you get another 100 rats. Well now, each of these sets of litters are on bell shaped curves too, and you keep doing the same thing. Keep taking the most, the least disliking alcohol rats and mating them together, and the most disliking alcohol rats and mating them together. 14, 15 generations later, you have two different strains of rats. Over here, you got Lewis rats. Lewis rats, out of the box, no sugar, will drink lab, lab alcohol. They will hit the lever till their heart's content, which it never gets to be, whether you stick them with heroin, cocaine, tobacco, alcohol, anything. These guys are Fisher 344 rats. You can put an IV line in their vena cava, give them heroin when they hit a lever. They'll walk around the cage, they'll hit the lever, go like this, and go back to rat chow. They don't like it, they get nothing. take these rats before you ever gave them a drug, okay? new set of, two, two strains of rats, new pups, sorry we're going to have to kill the rats. You look at their brains, these Lewis rats, you remember you heard about tyrosine hydroxylase that makes the, the um, serotonin, well there's another enzyme that helps make dopamine, these are all biogenic amines and they're all in the same system. The precursor for dopamine has to get up to the axon to get made. Well, in these Lewis rats, this axon looks all spindly. Kind of like that, um, who showed the slide with the serotonin neuron and MDMA? It was all spindly and broken up, but it didn't look like the axon of the other neuron. And this tract is usually nice and thick and juicy and lots of precursors going up there. And this one looked like it had been decimated. And these rats had never taken a drug in their life. These were newly born rats. Okay. You go over here to the Fisher 344s and what are they? What are they? they have normal tubes leading, dopamine leading there. Normal. Because you can't get bigger. But they have more dopamine receptors than normal rats. Okay. So if you give them dopamine, it's aversive. They don't like it. You give these guys dopamine, they want a six-pack to take home. These are two different sets of rats. You can't get these guys that I'm over here to use drugs, but you could make them use drugs. You stick the thing in the vena cava, and they won't push the lever, but you push the lever, and you give them some heroin, and you get them high seven times a day every day for a few weeks. Okay? And you remember that curve I showed you where the spikes go down and down and down and down and down? You do that to these rats, and they will now push the lever. You can turn this Fisher three forty four rat into a guy that looks like a Lewis rat. He'll drink lab alcohol, he'll push the lever, he'll take cocaine, he'll take cigarette, he'll take nicotine, IV, he'll take anything. Okay? Because you can get there from two different routes. You can be born with our system that just doesn't work right, and you don't ever feel right and you don't know why you don't fit in and someone gives you a cigarette and you go oh my god the lights went on or you could be born over here with really too many dopamine receptors too many dopamine receptors so that normal amounts of dopamine kind of make you nervous and anxious and you like things like morphine and benzos because they calm you down but like any drug if you take a calming drug, you're still getting that dopamine spike. And so you could take what we used to call type 1 alcoholic. The guy's a late-onset alcoholic, compulsive guy, gets through medical school, accounting school, law school, likes rules, likes order. When he was 15, wouldn't like cocaine. By the time he's 35, we'll take cocaine because he's taken his dopamine system and turned it from a Fisher 344 system into a Lewis system. And we know this really works because Nora Volkoff, who's the head of NIDAR, she did this study with Ritalin and subjects, and she took humans now. So we weren't really cruel to anybody. We took humans. She took humans. And nobody accounted anyway. And she um, divided them, did PET scans first, and divided them into people who had lots and lots and lots of dopamine receptors and other people who didn't have a lot of dopamine receptors. Okay? That's all she knew about them. Didn't know whether they'd use drugs or... Well, actually, she did. She did know that they weren't using drugs. But she didn't know gambling, didn't know family history, just knew these people had a lot of dopamine receptors. These people didn't have a lot of dopamine receptors. IV Ritalin, without them knowing what was going in. They're sitting there, and Ritalin's dripping. These guys, all of a sudden, light up. They say, hey, I don't know what you're doing back there, but I like it. These guys get nervous, their skin is itchy, they don't like it, they want to pull the IV out, they want to withdraw their consent. Now Dr. Volkoff thought, you know, now that I understand this about dopamine receptors, I wonder if I just gave them less Ritalin, it would have worked. So she called those controls back and she asked them, will you come back for one tenth of the dose, one tenth of the dose, it won't be the same. Not one person said yes. Ritalin. We're not talking cocaine. We're talking Ritalin. They didn't like it. So, two types of addicts. Type 1 and Type 2. People have, you know, I mean, since the early days, people have been talking about Type 1, Type 2 alcoholics. You know, early onset, rapid, rapid uh, progression to stimulants. This is different than the guy who makes it through law school, through medical school. Now, COMT is another enzyme. It breaks down. Those little monsters I showed you breaking down the dopamine, COMT is one of those. Well, like all enzymes, you could have a mutated COMT. Well, here, it's just a point mutation. One amino acid could be different. I think it's the, if anybody cares, it's the 184th amino acid, and it's methionine to leucine. Not that it's important. If you have both alleles Methionine, the way it's supposed to be, everything goes fine. If you have one leucine and one methionine, you don't... metabolize don't mean really well, and you have a tendency to get anxious. And these people have a higher prevalence of um, panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and simple phobias. And if you have two of the mutated enzymes, so you have both pairs mutated, you have an increased risk for serious anxiety disorders like OCD and severe panic disorder that just doesn't get better with the usual quick treatment. And I already told you how you can turn a type 1 into a type 2, so you can imagine a guy who's kind of obsessive, scared, nervous, and he starts with alcohol or a benzo. wouldn't like cocaine or Ritalin, but... He goes there anyway after a few years because he can change his dopamine system. Now, there's only one thing we haven't covered yet, and that's the idea that overeating can actually be impairing, or there can be something different. I mean, so far, we haven't seen a whole lot of physical evidence except those PET scans that show you that there's something different about uh, overeater's brain. This is about the world literature on overeating, and or obesity and cognitive or mental impairment. Okay. So this is the result of four different Medline searches um, trying to get some things together. But what is, I think, um, most important is the fourth one that showed that in eating disorders, there is a prolonged P300 latency, which is going to sound familiar, right? We've seen that before in other addictions. And so what I'd like to suggest to you in closing is that we consider changing our vocabulary. We could say, I'm addicted to alcohol, and I'm addicted to compulsive overeating, and I'm addicted to gambling, and I'm addicted to cocaine. We could say those things. But the most true thing I've ever heard said was, hi, I'm John, I'm an addict, and my drug of choice is more. When you think about that, it makes a lot more sense to me that we can see the commonalities rather than the differences. And if we're hearing somebody getting high on pills, not alcohol, is it really all that different? Now, AA has a long tradition of kind of seeing a difference, and that's changing now, but a lot of people in AA for a long time said that this was not the same thing. In a process addiction, like compulsive overeating, where the drug isn't as important as the behavior, although it is to some compulsive orators. Recovery really means something different. Recovery has a lot less to do with abstinence and a lot more to do with moment-to-moment serenity, moment-to-moment surrender your will to a higher power. So I think that if if we as a, a recovering community could sort of take a more inclusive look at the process addictions, We might find that in some ways, even though AA was the first 12-step program and laid the basis and laid the foundations, we might find that those other 12-step programs have found some facts along the way that could inform us and tell us more about this disease. And thanks.